Welcome to the Ohio State University, especially for our guests coming from outside of the country. Uh, to those of you coming within the country, still welcome to the Ohio State University. Uh, this is the Mission Center for International Security Studies. We are very grateful for the opportunity to host this conference. And the person that has made it possible is Professor Rick Herman, Director of the Mission Center. I also want to express my gratitude for all of you who have traveled so far and who didn't travel far for coming and spending time here at Ohio State. This is the third meeting Mershon has been involved with on African affairs. Three or four years ago, we decided the center should make a turn and become more involved in the studies of conflict in Africa. We hosted a conference on the conflicts in the Great Lakes area. It was an enormous success, and we began to build relationships with a variety of universities in Africa. We hope to repeat that still maybe next year, taking our show on the road into the Great Lakes area itself, because the feedback from that conference was some of these might even have a higher multiplier effect if they could be held in the region or could participate in 10. In any case, then, two years ago, we sponsored the International Society of Somali Studies. Welcome back, Secretary uh, Jeff Frazier. We met then, I remember. And that turned out to be a very important event here in Columbus. As many of you may know, we have a large Somali population in Columbus, and it's an important part for our university community became an important part for the Mershon Center to be involved, both in the community here and also in affairs of Africa. I had the good fortune over the last several years to be helping the area studies centers and had the good fortune to meet Kalechi Kalu and hired him actually <laughs> to direct our African Studies Center and told him that I would like him to be very active and try to continue what we had begun, something I can't do. I'm myself a specialist on the Middle East and the Arab world, not Africa. We're committed to it here. I want to just tell you one little bit about the Mershon Center, if you're wondering where we come from and where our money comes from. Uh, Ralph Mershon was a contemporary of Thomas Edison. He invented the first electronic condensers. Uh, he died in 1952, and he left his entire fortune to The Ohio State University. He held 28 of the earliest patents on how to store and move electricity. It's the largest endowment Ohio State University has. And if you wander around the Ohio State University, you'll see the Mershon name many places. The main performing auditorium here is the Mershon Auditorium. There are many positions in the medical school that have the Mershon name associated with it. But he wrote into his gift to the university that the majority of his gift needed to be spent by civilians studying what he calls military activities. He was a man of the 50s, which in this country meant that in some ways he was affected by the Eisenhower period, where he himself had been a military officer. But he was new to the notion that the United States would have a large standing military all the time. And he was worried that military and national security questions were too important to be left strictly to military thinkers or even to those in Washington. And he wanted the campus both to legitimate the study of national security questions, and we do work uh, with the ROTC groups here, but be entirely unaffiliated to government in any way and use his resources to mobilize civilian expertise on issues related to we, we now define it as national security in a global context. And we concentrate our resources on three main themes. We are interested in the use of force and diplomacy in the world. And we have sort of the traditional menu of that, people doing military history, political science, uh, area conferences like this one. 
We have a second group, about a third of the center, that focus on what we call the culture and ideas that underpin security. Some of them come from anthropology, some come from folklore for the production and reproduction of identity communities, some of them come out of English, some of them come from philosophy, religious studies, again, many of the area centers are involved, as we try to understand what we call the ideas or the ideational landscape, to use jargon, of different uh, regions of the world. And finally, we work closely in conjunction with the law school here on what we call institutions that manage violent conflict. We're particularly interested in the establishment of domestic institutions that would channel otherwise uh, diverse interests that could become conflictual or even violent uh, into democratic processes or other kinds of rules of law. And we are interested in the laws of war. And we sort of confine ourselves to those three things, not because those are the only things related to national security, but those are the things that we feel we can do really well here. And we try to do that. One last comment, and then I'll be quiet. We're not trying to compete with the Beltway Institutes in Washington. Uh, our hope is that we can produce ideas and books and research that has what we call long shelf life. We're interested in publishing the top journals, top presses, trying to bring the top scholars from around the world together to think about what we consider the foundational issues that underpin many of the policy choices. So without further ado, I just want to thank you. I want to thank Kalechi, uh, Ann Powers, and the group here at Prashana who've done a lot of logistics, Laura Joseph. Uh, one of the great things about being the director of this center is that I have numerous colleagues like Kalechi, and I just get a smorgasbord of really interesting stuff <laughs> to welcome people to and then enjoy. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Uh, George Keir, uh, who is currently Dean of the uh, University of West Georgia, is a co-principal investigator on this project. I want to also take this opportunity to thank Peter Agbese, Professor Peter Agbese, for all his uh, effort and encouragement. Um, the first panel is going to be, because I'm supposed to be sharing some ideas with you, I'm going to yield that panel to Peter, excuse me, to George Keir as soon as uh, uh, I get out of this place so that uh, he can take over and we'll have the first paper and I'll present my paper and then take over directing the, uh, the rest of the conference. Thank you again for coming. We'll start promptly at 9.30. Fine. Yeah. Are, are you going to 
is also small. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much uh, to the organizers and my colleagues. It's a great pleasure to be here, and thank you, Kiliji, for putting this together. I would have been very surprised, quite frankly, if Ohio State did not have Kiliji to be director, <laughs> given the enormous work that he's done in this field. I also would have been very surprised if Ohio State did not give the discourse or the discussion on the emerging trends um, in what politics and how to think about it in the long term. My, my modest objective is to contribute to that um, in this discussion today. Um, I titled my paper from Benign Neglect to Strategic Engagement, uh, The Challenge of Transforming America's um, African Policy in the Age of Obama. I want to begin with the age of Obama uh, because it kind of connotes the uh, impression that this is an epoch. And it is a watershed, quite frankly. The history of the United States um, um, has not produced something like that. And, and I'm not quite sure any of, any of us was expecting that. So when it happened, it became a big deal. Um, I think with that also comes a lot of expectations. And that is that is the, the cross of my discussion today, is, is those expectations match to reality. And, and part of that reality is the way the United States has constructed its foreign policy, especially towards Africa. Um, Ohio State is famous for, when they hired my sister, Kaleji's wife, um, uh, putting a lot of talk into how we think about race and race relations. And I think it's a great place to do that. We'd be remiss if we did not mention that. One of the fascinating things about Obama and his presence is the notion that somehow the United States has moved into a post-racial period. Race doesn't matter. And we are contending with that. In the study of U.S. African policy, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to escape that notion of race. And that's one of the things I want to put on the table today. The other is one that international relations scholars study quite a bit. System structure. In many ways, structuralism contains that we are all constrained by the overall architecture of the international system that we live in, including even the most powerful actors, states, in this case, the hegemonic state in the United States. If that is the case, then, it will appear that despite the best intentions of any singular actor, and go back in this case, Obama, he will be constrained by that system structure. So one of the things we want to do that I want to tease out in this paper is what is the nature of the system structure at the end of the first decade of the 21st century? Is it a hegemonic structure? Or are we living now in a post-hegemonic structure? Think seriously about China. Think seriously about what has become of Russia. And think seriously about the EU, and you begin to understand why this discourse on international system, system structure matters. Two weeks ago, I was in Japan, and Japanese officials, they had a new government, the first in 50 years, um, and they are moving towards Asia. And the, the new prime minister said, 
that they want to focus more on Asia. In fact, they want an Asian regional bloc. And that will also entail adjusting their agreements with the United States uh, in terms of military business and all of that. Everybody <coughs> is the United States losing its hegemony? If that is the case, who is the U.S.? And how might that affect U.S. behavior and conception of the soul in Africa? Um, I don't have a definitive answer to that. I, well, quite frankly, my position is that the, we are not in a post-hegemonic era. The United States is still the central actor and will remain for a very long time. Um, but we have to take cognizance of the other actors. In Africa, it is China, and that will extend quite a while. The next issue in this introduction for me is globalization. Globalization is changing how states conceive of themselves and others, especially small states. For a long time, we viewed globalization as something that is inherently good. And now, even those who saw globalization or found the good aspects of globalization, now realize that something has run amok. In the United States, we think of it in terms of the financial crisis. Elsewhere in the world, the blame, of course, the U.S. and the U.S. sees a much bigger picture. But those who study political economy say, well, the foundation of the international system was built after World War II. The world has changed since then. But those institutions have remained virtually unchanged. Those who study African political economy say, well, we told you so. The system has been arranged against us. It has led to imperfections. We felt the bond of the global economy. And now the rest of the world can see. But that also provides an opportunity, I think, to rebuild the institutions of the international economic system. And that's part of the, the, the issues that we're going to have to deal with. Um, my thesis is this. The United States has not been, in general, uh, uh, foreign policy makers are seeing folks here from the military. My modest and honest opinion of U.S. foreign policy towards Africa is that the U.S. hasn't cared very much about Africa. Never has. I've always been in the plan. It's not that, and this is very interesting, for many Africans in Africa, the view oftentimes is that the U.S. wants to mess us up. In other words, they think about us so much that they want to win us. The reality is that the U.S. really doesn't care very much. Registers in, a, in the American radar. One of my best examples, and I got this first time, George and I studied Liberia. When I was doing that study, I interviewed the then ambassador, US ambassador to Liberia. Um, and he, I said, You see, the problem many Africans don't understand is that you guys are very close to Liberians. How come they're having all these problems and you are not helping them? He said, You know, that feeling is not mutual. That somehow Liberians are connected to Americans. It's not mutual. I mean, I understand why Liberians feel that way. Americans don't feel that way. We don't feel any particular action and therefore obligation to help Liberians. And it hit me. Why is that? A few examples in history point to this. 
And I'm going to get back to that. Um, how do we deal with that? I propose that African states should strengthen their state structures. Julius and I were in Chicago not too long ago who we were talking about, uh, for a conference, and we were talking about democracy and why successive African regimes continue to struggle with democracy. Why does it matter? Governance is the most critical ingredient for state stability and prosperity, and it is lacking in Africa. And we need to encourage African states to strengthen state structures, legal institutions, governance institutions, apparatus, and also in the process engage some cultural aspects that undermine state structures. In doing so, strengthening regional linkages. I come back to my example of Japan. That's a very big country. The United States is a hegemonic power or the hegemonic power, yet it builds regions, institutions. It carries Europeans, it carries uh, 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 other North American partners, Canada, Mexico, whatever it suits it. The Japanese want the US to be part of a new ASEAN trading bloc. The Australians want the US to be part of that. So, so you can imagine that big states build regions, regional institutions. Africans will need to strengthen that to be able to move forward to the century. Okay, let's get to the nitty gritty. We have a historical paradox here. Modern African states exist today post independence because of the United States. But for the United States, Ghana would not have been independent in 1957. There's a remarkable picture there of Prime Nkrumah dancing with uh, the Duchess of Kent. I saw that in 1956. That was because of Roosevelt telling Churchill during the war that we're going to have to end colonialism. And that's what made the modern African state post-independent African states possible. And yet, something happens somewhere along the line. A clear sense of abandonment, and it gets even worse. I remember a Ghanaian 30 years back about the, the first African state to be independent, coming to New York to attend a meeting of the United Nations with Kwame Nkrumah, and having difficulties lodging in a hotel in New York. And they raised it with US officials, then they called the State Department to call the hotel to say, this is an ambassador. Why? The blacks were not allowed in the United States to get a hotel room with whites. And it took an exceptional act of the State Department to get this ambassador. The first time they saw a black, every black man was, of course, an African American. And now, He's what? A diplomat for where? Ghana. You have to give him a room. And this is not too long ago. 1958, 1959, 1960. Right? If African ambassadors could not get a room in New York City, and it's not deep south, then you can imagine what the rest of the blacks in the United States must, must have faced. And then extend that a little bit how the State Department could have carried Africa along in its decision-making. And we see the former Secretary of State, conservative sister, by the way, say one of the things she was stunned about in the State Department is how there are very few minorities in the hallway. 
And this is 2008. Is that right? Condoleez Rice. And she's not a liberal. And she's Republican, by the way. Secretary of State. That in the hallways of the State Department, she's struck by the sheer absence of minorities. That says a lot. So, who makes the decision on Africa? Where is the empathy? Where is the interest? Right? Behind the black. And then we have this other contradiction. The United States is so attractive to Africans. Africans love the United States. They want to be here. Look at me. Look at Kennedy. Look at Bill. Look at George. We're all here. But even beyond that, American TV is a staple of African households that can afford it. To say nothing about American fashion. And it gets even more interesting. American principles. Democracy. Elections. Um, bourgeois existence. Right? Commodious living. Liberty. Free price. In Liberia, they use the U.S. dollar. How do you deal with this disjunction? I also want to emphasize the issue of what I call a constitutive factor. The U.S. is a primary lesson for many African state builders on how to build a state and how not to build a state. Deplorable school to neglect the ethnic divisions in Africa, I think, is a serious mistake because they are real. Anthropologists call it ethnic, they are actually nations. But how do you bring them together to focus on one project, building a state? We've tended to wish it away, and there are many theories I want to get into, I'm not going to bother with that. But one of the lessons that the US provides for many Africans is that it is possible to build one out of many. And that's not something that the American political establishment has stressed enough to Africans. And so when United Nations goes to Africa, in Nigeria, my country, and tells them, look, we have elections here. We don't always do it well. You are struggling with it. If you lose, please accept. And she was berated here for saying that. And this is part of the problem. I can shine it. Honestly enough, the American experience and struggles and opportunities with nation building with their African counterparts will have the same way the U.S. has done with Europeans. The same way it is done with Asia. Um, there have been sometimes moments in this relationship I think one of the things that has struck many Africans, and we have to run through this historical uh, uh, process to, to get to where we are, the challenge that Obama is going to face, is that oftentimes, and I give the, the Liberian example, William Twaddle, um, Americans have treated Africans as though, look, you're your own. Part of it is also America, the nature of American foreign policy. We are here to defend our own freedom, uh, we'll support you, but we're not going to do much. It happened to Haiti very early. Um, but it is partial. When it comes to Europeans, the U.S. is quick to help them. Continues to help Asia. But for Africans, you're your own. We support you, but you're your own. Liberia, Somalia, you name every single conflict in Africa that could have been nipped in the bar. Very on. They prolonged mainly because the attitude was doing almost exactly the wonder. And what do we get in the Right? How do we change that? It began with Basement. I went for this hot child, very moving walk. Really, King Leopold's ghost on this. That 
Europeans sat down in Bismarck's dining room to divide up Africa. The U.S. was not a superpower in 1885, but it was recognized as a power. If Americans had said, you can't do it. You can't do it. I doubt that Europe would have done what it did in 1885. It didn't happen. The U.S. did not take part in the scramble for Africa, but it didn't do anything to stop it. That's the binary neglect. And so Bismarck and his European counterparts divided, sliced Africa, and we're still living with those effects. In fact, I think we could fast forward 200 years later and ask, how come we haven't had another conference, Bismarck type in White House, to redraw that old map and see if we can put it back together? If you take an initiative, it hasn't come. The other is the burden of what I call youth possibilities. International lawyers tell us that. Leave the boundaries as they are. It was promoted in 1985, promoted in 1960, continues to be promoted today. A lot of the civil wars that you see in Africa are not all irrational. And we tend to view them that way. Africans just like killing each other. That's what the French diplomat told me. And I was stuck. What do you want us to do? Africans always kill each other. Thank you very much. Um, at least for the French man, by the way. Um, now, it's not irrational. They are struggling with boundaries that just don't make sense. Boundaries that do not make sense, they didn't make sense in 1885, they didn't make sense in 1960, they sure don't make sense today. Problem is, there isn't much they can do about it. And the international system hasn't helped them very much. Judge, how many more minutes do I have? Five, thank you very much. You have the generals. The international system hasn't helped very much. Now, part of the ways we could deal with that, I condemn very humbly, is to get around the state structure by building original organizations. It hasn't worked very well for all number of reasons. You know, my colleagues here study that as well. Um, but we should not neglect the impact of UT possibilities as we begin to think of how Obama can move back to Canada. And then I want to get to Wilson, of course. The mandate system was brutal. I think we give Wilson a lot of credit, and we should. But Wilson did not have Africa in mind. Wilson had Eastern Europe in mind. But Czechoslovakia, right? The right of all free-loving people to independence. And it became a concept that just shone around the world, to Africa, to Asia. Once self-determination was possible for the Poles, for the Czechs, and for the others, sure enough, it's going to be possible for Africans and for Asians and all the rest. But the interesting thing about it, like, this is not Wilson's problem. He worked very hard in Europe to, to write the treaty. After he left, of course, we know what happened, leak, all messed up. But what was interesting is the inherent racism of the document that they produced in Versailles in the mandate system. Non-civilized countries or peoples, not countries, will be subjected to the rule of the civilized until they have right. When will a non-civilized people ever be ready? Especially when that determination has to be made by the civilized. Right? 
udaka. We are back to it. If the United States had said no to this article of faith, it would not have gotten into the mandate system. It allowed white South Africa to run amok in the, in the southern um, cone of Africa. Um, I want to go to Lumumba very quickly uh, uh, because it's really one of those benchmarks. I think Africa has not recovered from the Congo. They say it's Africa's longest lasting war, it may well be. It's not an African war. It's really a world war. Um, Congo was a disappointment at many fronts. But the, the one I want to emphasize is the loss of faith in international organizations for Africa. Right? It, it was that the UN would be here to counterbalance the effect of the superpowers. Congo bossed that. And from then on, Africans have been scared of globalization. Have been scared of international organizations, even when they are potentially useful. We saw that in ECOWAS. ECOWAS resisted the UN forever, spent a lot of money of their own instead of getting the UN money to do the job. But it is a rational reaction to the Congo, and we're still dealing with it. Then you, you look at Reagan's constructive, so called constructive engagement in South to engage uh, a white regime um, and, and, and pretend as though racism was not really a problem. It was instead communism that was a problem. Okay. Um, where does this lead us now? Um, uh, let me pass Clinton. Bushes. Yes, yes. But, but can I just emphasize the, the war on terror? The war on terror becomes the last chapter of this long process where an otherwise well intended idea is viewed differently for Africans. Right? Uh, they are going after those who wage terror against civilian populations, that is condemnable everywhere. But for an African who has seen humanitarianism to end slavery and then colonialism, it's like, okay, what's going to be next? We are going to be the fundamentalists soon. And so, um, Obama. But begin to think of how Obama can move away from this grand design, if you will. We also have to look at the challenges that he faces here, strategic as well as economic. Um, the problem of African big men, fragile economy, rebuilding the United States with central economically, strategic focus, and all of that. He will have to do that first before he can engage Africa. But the few issues I want to, uh, I would like to, to put on the table while he's revising uh, U.S. perspective is to pay attention to what I call the youth bomb in Africa. A lot of very young people do not have jobs, and they turn into militancy. Is the problem in the Gulf of Guinea? Niger Delta and the areas that produce petroleum. African traditions have got to be confronted. No one is better able to speak to that than he himself. Um, the issue of corruption, sexism, ethno-religious bigotry. Um, and then we have this improbable dilemma of what to do with African oil, which will be accounted for 25% of US oil imports, they say, in the next uh, 10 years, um, and the problems that come with that. Africa. I propose that we view Africa as part of this process of moving away from benign neglect to strategic engagement. If we argue that the United States hasn't focused on Africa enough, which is my argument, it's not because he hates Africa or it's because it's racist, no. It's just that Africa doesn't feature very much. Then what do we make Americans get interested in Africa? I think part of it is strategy. Right? Strategic thinking. A, 
after it's crucial to global, to American damages globally. Okay? Military, economically, and all of that. But that also means the things that we fear, that a U.S. engagement with Africa will put Africa in American radar, which nobody likes. But that might also have some positive effects. How do we maximize those positive effects? I say, I ask you here, please, that the key word will be partnership. We've seen this model work elsewhere. The United States built a strategic relationship with, with Japan and Asia and Europe after defeating them in the war. But the key word here is partnership. If the United States is able to convince Africans that it's ready for a partnership, built on mutual respect, yes, then it is possible to have a strategic relationship. But that will require being open, being honest about history, and taking each other very seriously and respectfully. Thank you very much. All right, thank you, Clement. Our next presenter is Kalechi Kalu. Professor of African and African American Studies and Director of the Center of African Studies at Ohio State. Again, thank you for uh, your participation in the United States uh, West Africa Security Relations Conference, specifically uh, on this panel. She's going to plug something in. I don't know how one follows uh, Clement Adibe. Uh, it's always tough. Uh. Sorry, um, I guess it is important that we wear this just because this, the town would be much better in the final product, so I stand corrected on that. Thank you. <clears throat> the title of my paper is U.S. Africa Security relations in the 21st century, trends and implications. There are six sections to the paper. I will try very much not to read the paper. I will give you brief ideas of what it contains, and I'll spend much of my time on the conclusions. Um, within the introduction, I make reference, uh, and we haven't talked about this paper, I make references to some of the things that uh, Professor Adibe makes reference to. But specifically in my case, the nature of U.S.-Africa relations is one that we can understand by looking at how U.S. has really looked at the continent of Africa as two Africas. The North African region that he refers to as North African Caucasian, and Africa is really Sub-Saharan Africa. In that context, analytically, I use Bruce uh, Gentilson's four P's to frame the paper, prosperity, principles, peace, and power. These are the analytical markers that we can use to understand why the United States relates to Africa the way it does. Then I look at the historical nature of U.S. relations with Africa, the Cold War and U.S. security. Interest in Sub-Saharan Africa is the third section. The fourth section of the paper examines the platform of the new U.S.-Africa security relations. Then I spend quite a bit of time on the war on terrorism, a matter of prosperity and principles for Africans. I conclude by arguing that security in the 21st century depends on peace 
and prosperity. Indeed, it is not the case that the United States has uh, not been engaged with Africa. She has been engaged. According to David Davison, United States engagement with the continent of Africa was more pronounced in terms of the actual location and reason for such engagements. It was to stem the tide of harassment, intimidation, and loss of goods by American sailors to North African pirates that an American consulate was opened in Algiers in 1792 and in Tripoli and Tunis in 1795. In 1796, Captain Benjamin Stout made a plea to President John Adams in the following words, quote, I would draw the attention of the President to those commercial benefits which may be obtained by establishing a colony for America on that part of the coast where my ship was unfortunately wrecked, or some other part of the southern continent, which may from its fertility invite a settlement. As I apprehend nothing is wanted to perfect the whole, but the ex exertions of a wise and liberal government, I have recommended the establishment of a colony in these parts to your consideration. The part he was making reference to was Southern Africa. And one of the reasons the United States did not really pursue colony had to do with United States expansion in the Americas. So U.S. engagement with Africa has been there almost uh, from the beginning. Subsequently, and perhaps in response to Captain Benjamin Stout's plea, an American post was set up in Cape Town in 17. 99. <clears throat> However, the United States and West Africa have a long history that predates the 4th of July, 1776. It is a history of enslavement and freedom, built on a platform of prosperity and principles. In addition to being a history of official benign neglect of issues affecting Africans by U.S. decision makers, it is a history that is equally framed around what Mudimbe refers to as paradigm of difference, which politically and economically viewed Africa as an extension of European responsibilities. The relationship has also been framed about, framed around media reporting. If we go further back in history, um, we find, for example, quote, in 1869, James Gordon Bennett of the New York Herald sent Henry Martin standing off to Africa with these cosmic instructions. Quote, I want you to attend the opening of the Suez Canal and then proceed up the Nile. Send us detailed descriptions of everything likely to interest the American tourists. Then, go to Jerusalem, Constantinople, the Crimea, the Caspian Sea, through Persia as far as India. After that, you can start looking around for Livingston. That is David Livingston. No. If he is dead, bring back every possible proof of his death. More than a hundred years later, the American press is still engaged in a voyage of discovery in relation to Africa. In contrast to Britain and France, where journalists have played a prestigious lifetime career of becoming authorities on Africa. 
An American journalist is expected to approach Africa as a short-term assignment in the safari tradition. The reward for those who explore their domain conscientiously is promotion to an area of greater journalistic and diplomatic priority. Indeed, as expert knowledge, especially from distant places, tends to impact the domestic perception and content of policy toward the target states, the extent to which media reports are based on substantive knowledge about sub-Saharan Africa beyond its safari content will significantly affect U.S. perception and identification of its interests in the region. Although the foregoing citation dates back to 1869, it illuminates the nature and focus of contemporary U.S. foreign policy with little variation. For example, while the Middle East, Europe, and Asia continue to be major areas of substantive interest for the United States, Sub-Saharan Africa remains attractive based on agendas set by media houses that promote such fantastic tales as animals in Africa speaking perfect English, as in The Lion King, but real humans in the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy lack such expertise. Um, let me touch very briefly on the Cold War and U.S. security interests, just very briefly. Uh, when I'm done, if you want the paper, I can give it to you before we edit it. U.S. security interest in Africa was wrapped around the need to contain communism during the Cold War. It was needed as a platform to prevent the expansion of the Soviet Union. It was needed as a platform to ensure the security of Europe. Indeed, United States Africa policy was largely wrapped around European foreign policy. There was no office that strategically focused on Africa. African affairs was put within the domain of Near East, Af Near East African, excuse me, Near North African Bureau. As Ambassador Davis put it quite well in 2007 with regard to the Cold War policies, she said, Africa now, at the end of the Cold War, sits front and center in our foreign policy. For the United States, Africa for too long was on the margins of U.S. foreign policy interest. In World War II, Africa was a strategic stepping stone to the places that mattered in Europe. In the Cold War, Africa was sideshow to the struggle that mattered in Europe and East Asia, even as we Americans set in place well-intentioned economic development policies. It was too often with the idea of doing good for Africa rather than with Africa. And according to Walt and Brown, throughout the Cold War, U.S.-Africa policy was based on its, quote, avoidance of direct military intervention and they relies on covert, indirect forms of intervention, containment of Soviet Union, and the cultivation of American, of American leaders in Africa, pro-American leaders in Africa. The foregoing approach to U.S. policies in Zaire, Angola, Nigeria, South Africa, and elsewhere in Sub-Saharan Africa demonstrate lack of deep commitment to a long-term relationship based on support for the people of the sub-region. 
It also failed to advance United States cardinal principles of peace and prosperity. In Sub-Saharan Africa, as various autocratic leaders used the military and economic aid from the U.S. to brutally suppress their citizens. Such policy approach emboldened the apartheid regime in South Africa to intensify its domestic racial humiliation of indigenous Africans, as well as pursuing a scorched-earth policy against the African National Congress and the frontline states that provided aid to the ANC. The platform of the new U.S.-Africa security relations. Those familiar with problems of governance in sub-Saharan African states will recognize the trajectories the discourses on African politics have taken since the 1960s. Mostly following political independence in the 1960s, analysts were focused on types of government without adequate considerations for the role of individuals in various structures and institutions of government. In the 1980s, the concern was with individuals and their rational capacity to make purely public decisions to the extent that they were not constrained by either government or state institutions. With the end of the Cold War in the, eight, in the 90s, scholarship on Africa has reverted back to states with keener emphasis on state structures, coalitions, and civil society organizations and their roles in good governance. The end of the Cold War induced desire for good governance that did not first seek to reform the platform on which the states stand in Africa, equally unleashed the energies of the formerly marginalized as well as those desiring the use of ungoverned spaces for their individual rather than collective resource use. What the foregoing means is that from its inception, the state in Africa has not been able to fully consolidate its capacity to broadcast sufficient power to maintain and secure its sovereign territory. And most significantly, when the end of the Cold War, with the end of the Cold War, African issues were no longer important to the national interests of the superpowers, most of the issues that ignited domestic conflict for Africa remained without resolution. Thus, the end of the Cold War provided opportunities for non-state actors with external connections to challenge African states' capacity for control of their territories and resources, from Liberia to Syria alone, the Democratic Republic of the Congo to Nigeria. And since the interconnected global information technology which enhanced global transportation, information sharing, and financial mobility are non-state actors do not respect, and non-state actors do not respect the economic, social, and physical boundaries of African states, the end of the Cold War and its peace dividend for Africa reveals more clearly that the incomplete project of nation building in sub-Saharan Africa is a domestic and international security threat. Rather than the Cold War peace made, rather the Cold War peace made intra-state problems like religion, poverty, diseases, and ethnic conflict subservient to leaders claim need for a unified front against communism or capitalism. With the resolution of the Cold War conflict in the international system, latent regional and sub-regional political and economic issues resurfaced <clears throat> on the international agenda, but especially in staunchly contested territories like Liberia, Sierra Leone, Cote d'Ivoire, Kenya, Zimbabwe, and in other African states. 
Among these latent issues were demand for constitutionalism, good governance, and popular participation in politics, the role of non-governmental organizations and civil society in political and economic development in African states, respect for human rights, and demand for an end to various ethno-national and religious marginalization in Africa. Equally present in the battlefield of demands are new organizations whose battle is not for the soul of the state or for nation building, but a purely resource-based battle against the weakened state. This new form of war or contestation for power is intensified by the access granted by globalization that allows its perpetrators to appeal widely to globally interconnected groups as well as source arms for their wars. The wars, as demonstrated in the cases of Guinea and the DRC Liberia under Charles Taylor for the Sangos Revolutionary United Front in Sierra Leone and Niger Delta militant groups in Nigeria, are not traditional wars for control of the state. Rather, these are wars that seek to exploit the resources for the state for the benefit of the leaders and their groups. I go to a great extent to explore this and map out this section to show how the new form of war that we are dealing with is indeed the major platform for that potentially is dangerous for the 21st century in terms of United States security. And also in this section I talk about AFRICOM as a tool. For the first time we have argued largely that the United States does not care about Africa. And at the same time it's establishing AFRICOM it is demonstrating that it wants to be committed on a sustainable, long engagement with Africa. There are those that disagree that this is America's secret intent to militarily intervene in African affairs. Both the left in the United States and the left in many African countries contend that AFRICOM indeed is America's entry into these areas. I argue otherwise. It depends on the principles, those charged with understanding and implementing the rules of engagement that will be, give, will be given to Africa. To the extent that these individuals have the expert knowledge to engage the Africans, understand African languages and culture, understand the nature of the ungoverned spaces, and why these majority of Africans are not finding the state relevant to their lives. To that extent, AFRICOM will be a tool in collaboration with African intellectuals, civil society organizations, and reasoned government to bring about an end to those ungoverned spaces as platforms for terrorism regionally and globally. I'm going to skip the section except to point this out, the section on the war on terrorism, a matter of prosperity and principle, so I can go to the conclusion. I just want to point out, yes, five? Okay. According to Pat, Patrick McGowan, from independence through 2004, 16 West African states have experienced 44 successful military-led coups, 43 often bloody failed coups, at least 82 coup plots, 
seven civil wars, and many other forms of political conflict. These are the nature, some of the issues that perturb the state, the platform on which we must deal in order to come to an understanding of why West Africa is indeed as it is. They are not letting me go to this, so I'm going to skip it. I will answer your questions. If you look at the table, for example, you, you find, I mean, you can extend the table very much. Uh, this is the governance indicators. I just picked this out, out of uh, uh, the World Bank's, uh, from the World Bank governance indicators. You, you can see Sub-Saharan Africa is poorly, if you use this indicator as a measure of whether or not these territories are truly well governed, whether or not these territories can stand united with the citizens and governments to confront the challenges of terrorism, the challenges coming from non-governmental actors. You can see that uh, African states do not have the capacity. <coughs> we are lower than South Asia, Middle East, and North Africa in almost all the indicators. Furthermore, since 29 of the 35 countries in the Low Human Development Index in 1999, I saw Southern Africa, and there are no visible improvements in the 2007-2008 indicators, where all the 21 countries classified under the category of low human development are sub-Saharan African states. And most states at the bottom of half of the medium human development category are still African states. The region is unarguably vulnerable to being captured by environmental and ideological terrorists that possess economic incentives. Most of the citizens who are vulnerable are vulnerable because they do not have viable alternatives. The alternative given to them in their arrested spaces is one that we can best describe as politics of the belly. If someone can feed me, I'm likely to be susceptible to their ideas. Over in here, I talked about Algoa, talked about Papa, talked about the nice things that the United States uh, is, has done, especially under uh, the leadership of Condoleezza Rice and Jendai Frazier, to help Africans uh, indeed understand the nature of the new engagement with Africa. I will beg your indulgence because I want to just read my conclusions uh, to the paper. For indulgence for how long? But <laughs> it, it, it's just about 35 pages of paper, so uh, don't worry. <laughs> As I explained in the first section of the paper, peace perhaps said, captures the essence of what U.S. foreign policy seeks to achieve because all four of the national interest objectives are about peace. For that is what power is supposed to safeguard, what prosperity is supposed to contribute to what principles are supposed to undergird. In this respect, successful prosecution of the war against terrorism in West Africa will depend on the extent the United States is prepared to think and engage issues of security from a new paradigm that is focused on political security, good governance, and expert knowledge about the people, languages, and cultures in West Africa. Clearly, the U.S. security policy under President George W. Bush was perceptive in its rethinking of the tools for engaging states in West Africa to help fight the war against terrorism. 
the success of this effort will depend on whether successive administrations are able to sustain the soft power over the hard military or foreign policy that engages the citizens to more effectively hold their public officials accountable, mobilize to help protect their territories, especially the ungoverned spaces, and bring about economic opportunities that would diminish the capacity of non-state actors to offer alternatives to penury and hopelessness in various states in West Africa. The foregoing approach will work in some instances, and in other instances, a more robust presence through Africa and the civilian component of the State Department will be definitive in arresting ungoverned spaces from criminal and sometimes terrorist groups. For sure, there are challenges such as the sustainability of a comprehensive peace agreement between North and South Sudan, the genocide in Darfur, the ongoing conflict in Eastern DRC, Somalia, and the Niger Delta region of Nigeria. But current U.S.-Africa policy that emphasizes peace within the context of political stability will go a long way to helping realize the other core values of U.S. national interest. However, given that in the foreign relations, the U.S. has consistently privileged power over principles, especially during the Cold War and in the war on terrorism, the refocus on security relations with Africa through deploying economic and military tools is likely to continue as the war on terrorism continues and will win with the decline of international terrorism until some other crisis erupts. But if successful, even in the short run, the new tool of Africa, an economic incentive designed to engage the hearts and minds of citizens of West African states in fighting regional and global insecurity, will in the long run have a positive effect of transforming the geography of the region from an oasis of corruption, poor governance, and ungoverned spaces into a hospitable region characterized by free and fair elections, accessible judicial institutions, and a platform for economic opportunities. This conclusion is based on three interrelated reasons. First, historically there has not been an institutionally embedded framework within the foreign policy process, especially with respect to the legislative branch of the U.S. government that consistently advocates for the relevance of Africa to U.S. national interest. Instead, groups like Trans-Africa Forum and the various anti-apartheid groups and the Darfur group are largely single-issue driven lobbies whose power dissipates when the issues are resolved or ignored. Thus, while important groups such as the Council on Foreign Relations advocate Africa's relevance solely on the basis of property, prosperity issues that are important to the business community, there are no continuing groups that advocate for attention to the core issue in the continent, political resolution to the problems in African states. In this respect, given that the American public tends to be focused on the regions where their sons and daughters are located, AFRICOM as one of United States' tools for combating the 21st century security threat in Africa will directly mobilize the legislative interests that will sustain the new partnership until it succeeds. Secondly, the United States has traditionally seen Africa as European state's problem and thus has consistently deferred to the Europeans, especially to the United Kingdom, on matters affecting Africa. In this respect, and with AFRICOM, that, that, and with Africom, that deference also includes all African states, 
except Egypt, indicating a more intense focus on priorities in the continent without a need to seek European views before acting in crisis situations. The implication of bypassing Europeans is evident in the change from prior 9-11, where United States effort in resolving crisis in the continent was largely logistical and financial. In contrast, the post-9-11 approach, the use of Africans to deploy U.S. citizens in collaboration with citizens of African nations to prevent and at times resolve threats to regional and international security. Lastly, multilateralism, working with ECOWAS and the African Union and others, which has worked and helped the United States to end some important conflicts, like the ones in Liberia, Sierra Leone, the DRC, has been largely ad hoc. Historically, this ad hoc nature of U.S. approach to African state issues, especially on support for health care, agriculture, and conflict resolution issues, is rooted in many American policymakers' suspicion of the United Nations as a platform for multilateral engagement. But given the civilian nature, the use of economic and political incentives of United States approach to fighting terrorism in West Africa, acknowledging that the UN is, on, is, an, is the only international body with the kind of global expertise and scope that can bring about sustained and institutionalized processes for coordinating, planning, and executing conflict management and resolution, election monitoring, healthcare training, and services, Emergency relief services, especially in conflict zones, will help gain the support of citizens in West African states who will begin to see the new security partnership with robust U.S. presence through the U.N. as legitimate and honest. Thus, to the extent that the U.S. seeks cooperation with the U.N., it can actually plan, implement, and achieve more results in working with citizens of West Africa to resolve problems with poor economic planning, governance, ecological, security threats, and help to establish an overall global security environment that preserves regional and global security conducive to U.S. national interests. In the end, the major security issues that are front and center in West African states are politicized ethnicity. Environmental security characterized by the dumping of toxic and sometimes nuclear waste. Health security issues such as HIV AIDS and resource-based conflict engaged in by non-state actors who exploit collective resources and do not seek to defend any nation. And why the United States and others seek a conducive environment for access to African nations' economic resources, ordinary citizens seek a stable and safe political environment and an end to poverty. These issues do not have any easy solutions and cannot be confined to West African nations because they are global issues manipulated by criminal gangs and terrorist groups that operate in ungoverned spaces to plot and carry out their agendas. Thus, conflict and violence in resource-rich enclaves that ensure the pursuit of illegal economic activities will fester. Consequently, the unaccountable profit out of these illegal activities will be a major security challenge for the 21st century, which can be reduced, if not eliminated, by providing an environment that promotes legitimate economic opportunities. U.S.-Africa collaboration on economic opportunities, education, good governance initiatives that use Africa in cooperation with local citizens will help prevent the use of profit from illegal economic activities to plot insecurity. If ordinary people do not have to worry about the source of their next meal. For example, 
Violence in places by the Niger Delta region of Nigeria is largely a response by marginalized, exploited, and dehumanized groups against the government. This has created an opportunity for criminal gangs to use that platform for agendas that have nothing to do with economic opportunities and political stability issues that are important to ordinary citizens. Non-state actors' capacity to illegally tap into major economic sources, in this case crude petroleum, which has been used to maintain the security of citizens, has sustained the challenge against the national government for several years. The ungoverned regions also breed opportunities for human trafficking, drug and guns trafficking, and money laundering that help to sustain terrorist and criminal elements. The challenge for the 21st century the challenge for security in the 21st century is how to control, prevent, and or destroy these nebulous, non-traditional sources of insecurity that tend to infest areas and regions of poor and weak countries like those in West Africa. A failed partnership will result in an ungoverned spaces within poor, weak, and nat natural resource African states as the locus and sources of global insecurity problems in the 21st century. However, effective partnership with the United States will result in African states' successful participation in bringing about the global and regional peace that we seek. Thank you. Well, I took only two minutes. No, you, you took ten minutes. And let's present General Russell Howard of Howard's Global Solutions. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for uh, hosting this uh, program that invited all my friends from Africa so I could have a good time with them. I did notice that he gave you a lot more time, and that's probably because you're signing the check. Why do you solve more time? I gave us 15 minutes, so I took it back. I also uh, I want to compliment the... Uh, the hosts, and in fact, you're, you're very smart because you chose a hotel for our group that didn't have a bar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, my friends here know exactly what we're talking about. So, I uh, didn't care much for the title of my presentation, but I didn't want to argue with it because I didn't want to be disinvited from the program. But I do have a couple of disclaimers. Uh, first of all, I just hit the, um, just the button, button. Oh, down button, down button, there we go. Can't be a military officer not have an agenda uh, for a briefing, right, General? I mean, so this is my agenda, and this is what I'm going to talk about, and Sarah, I'm going to try and do this in 20 minutes. Right. Uh, what's West Africa? You look at some maps and it includes North Africa and all the way down to Equatorial Africa and further south. For the purpose of my paper, uh, West Africa is depicted in red here with 16 countries, most of which we've talked about today. My other disclaimer has to do with the notion that there's a war on terrorism. This so-called global war on terrorism has been a terrible term. That fortunately, this administration well, at least the President and the Secretary of State have discounted. 
Unfortunately, our vice president doesn't quite get it, and he's still using it. And if he were in the room, I would say the same thing. Why? What is this about a... I mean, terrorism is not an ism like communism or socialism or capitalism. Terrorism is a tactic. And you don't launch a war to defeat a tactic. And I don't know what it is about the United States why we have a problem we declare war. The war on poverty. The war on drugs. I lived in Montana last year. And in Montana, if you Google this, if you don't believe me, Google this, we have a war on weeds. <laughs> there are billboards all over Montana that say, War on Weeds, do your part. <laughs> I haven't a clue what my part is or what. But we had not just weeds, but we had noxious weeds that were fouling our stream beds and ruining the elk hunting opportunities and moose hunting opportunities. And I think, do your part. We fought at the I mean, we still think that those weeds are coming over from Idaho. <laughs> so I think do your part, Dean, is sitting on the Idaho border watching for those weeds to come up. <laughs> I digress a little bit. Well, what, what happened? What message did we... I know it. We all know what the President of the United States said. War on terrorism... You're either with us or against us. You can run, but you can't hide. These statements were to rally the United States around, you know, to get morale up so that we could defeat <coughs> terrorism. But really what he wanted to say is we needed to defeat terrorists. You can't defeat an ism. Terrorism's been with us for centuries. It will be with us for centuries in the future. But you can defeat terrorists. And we will. We will. We gotta stop calling it a war because to our Muslim friends, what did what was the perception of the war on terrorism? It was a war on their religion. And then what about our traditional allies like Britain and France who have huge Muslim diasporas in their countries? You're either with us or against us? Give me a break. Failure to understand what your allies and your potential allies, what their perceptions are. So we gotta start stop calling it a war. That's in my opinion. Okay. Ah, by example. Now, World War II, that was war. What is the American way of war? Take a straight shot to the chops, get knocked down on your knees, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, mobilize all the elements of power, go out and kick some butt, have a parade, and demobilize. That is the American way of war. Look at the differences. World War II, 12 million plus in uniform, 36% of our GDP directed toward the war effort. Nation was on a war footing, rationing, victory gardens, do your part. Today, there's not a person in this room that has been personally affected unless you've lost a loved one or a friend. No one in this room is personally affected by the so-called global war on terrorism. you got tires for your car, gas for your car, you don't have victory gardens. And some of, us, some of us may think that maybe we aren't doing our I don't care much for the term global terrorism either. But I'm going to deal with it here. All right? The term is misunderstood and misused, in my opinion. Look, there is no global terrorism. There's no commander-in-chief of global terrorism. There's no global terrorism headquarters. 
There's no commander-in-chief directing terrorism in different parts of the, of the world. It's a misnomer. <clears throat> you can watch terrorism, however. You can watch it daily. You can go to a Google spot that will tell you daily what the terrorism events are in the world. And it's got nothing to do with someone globally in charge of terrorism. In fact, that is the, that is the website there. You can actually, on a daily basis, you can find out where terrorist events in the world. Fell in Missouri, he does it gratis. You can sign up, log on. Now, when we think of what I'm going to talk about, sort of how I think we think about global terrorism, it's in the red here. And those are Salafi jihadist terrorist events. And that's what I'm going to refer to in my talk. The expansion by forging relationships model. <coughs> Got a little carried away with mine. There is a debate on whether or not Al Qaeda is on the increase or on the decrease. Rohan Gunaratna will tell you that there are about 200 Al Qaeda operatives left living in the Fatah region of Afghanistan, down from about 4,000 after 9 11. Some experts, like Rohan, say that the decrease is natural, that we've killed thousands of them. Uh, and Assistant Treasury Secretary David Cohen will also tell you that Al-Qaeda has lost uh, relevance as far as financing, and that they're having difficulty in uh, maintaining, getting financial resources. Some experts, however, such as those at Risk Management Solutions, uh, disagree. According to RMS claims about Al-Qaeda disruption have been dramatically overstated. Although some high-ranking members have been eliminated, says RMS, the organization has been able to replace losses and along with like-minded Salafi jihadist terrorist organizations remains active on a global scale. Furthermore, according to RMS, the Al-Qaeda-led Salafi jihadist threat emanating from conflict zones such as Iraq Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, Algeria, India, Kashmir, and Russia, Chechnya, is now spilling over and destabilizing neighborhood, neighboring regime regions and countries. Alguna Ratna, RMS, and Secretary Cohen may debate Al-Qaeda's numbers and organizational viability. All agree that Al-Qaeda has perhaps actually expanded its global influence by forging closer relationships, and that's pretty much what I'm going to talk about with regard to Africa, with like-minded Salafi jihadist groups. According to Gunaratna, the number of these groups has grown dramatically, from a few in 2001 to more than 30 today, thus increasing the number of associated al-Qaeda groups exponentially. RMS notes that despite progress in Iraq, macro-terrorism attacks perpetuated by al-Qaeda influenced terrorist groups have increased globally to 340 attacks in 2009 compared to 326 last year. Secretary Cohen's claims reflecting major strides in disrupting Al-Qaeda's funding network are qualified by the statement that several other like-minded terrorist groups, particularly the Taliban in Afghanistan, are much stronger financially than Al-Qaeda, and that these and other terrorist groups continue to pose serious threats to the United States and its interests around the world.
The expansion by forging relationship or finding friends model is evident in Africa. While Al-Qaeda has been very specific about their objectives and opportunities in Africa, it is the like-minded Salafi jihadist groups that have conducted most of the operations on the continent in the past several years. Clearly, Al-Qaeda is interested in Africa. In an article written in 2006 and then re-released in 2007, Abu Azam al-Ansari was part of the Zarqawi network and I believe arrested in 2007 in Saudi Arabia, wrote of Al-Qaeda's interest in Africa. The article highlights Africa's importance to Al-Qaeda and notes its successes its succession in North, its successes in North and East Africa. For example, U.S. bombing, embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania, the expulsion of Americans from Somalia, involvement in Sudan and attacks by Al-Qaeda and like-minded groups in Mombasa, Jerba, Tunisia, Casablanca, Sharm el-Sheikh, and in Sinai were proudly cited. However, the article also explains that Al-Qaeda does not have a prominent role in other parts of Africa, including West Africa despite the fact that conditions for successful expansion exist. What are those conditions? According to the article, the political and military conditions, much of what you talked about in your talk, in most of the African continent, as well as broad weaknesses of its governments, the internal fighting and corruption of its regimes, should ease the ability of the Mujahideen, Salafi jihadists, to move, plan, and organize themselves without being detected. Other exploitable conditions, according to the article, include tribal conflicts and civil wars which provide a golden opportunity for Mujahideen, Reed, Salafi, jihadists to move, easily move undetected between different African countries. Also, these conditions provide easy access to inexpensive weapons and other military equipment. Finally, Abu Hassan Al-Ansari explains that a prominent advantage for Mujahideen in Africa is the general condition of poverty, social needs prevalent in most African countries. This situation enables Salafi jihadists to provide some finance and welfare and thus the ability to post, post there some of their influential operatives. So the article highlights successes and then also highlights conditions for successful expansion, and we all know these. But this notion of a golden opportunity is a theme that I'll use through the rest of my paper. Most intelligence analysts and security expert academics, Africa watchers and counterterrorism experts would agree with the golden opportunity assessment. Certainly, the Al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb, Maghreb and Al-Shabaab in Somalia have taken advantage of the golden opportunity to conduct terrorist operations in North and East Africa. However, the Al-Qaeda Salafi Jihadist variety of terrorism central focus of this paper, has really, in my view, had little success in expanding into West Africa yet. Why is this, and will this situation change? Will Al-Qaeda and like-minded terrorist groups expand their operations into West Africa? And if they do, what will their chances be for success? What other terrorist organizations operate in the region, and what is their connection, if any, to Al-Qaeda? And then how can Al-Qaeda ensure, U.S. ensure that Al-Qaeda and like-minded groups do not gain a foothold in West Africa? Al-Qaeda's Africa experience. In 
recent testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee, General William Ward, head of U.S. AFRICOM, said that over the past three years, Al-Qaeda has increased its influence dramatically across northern and eastern Africa. Two groups figure prominently in his analysis, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Baghdad, or AQIM, in North Africa, and Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Ori traditional Islamic African leaders appear to agree with Ward's assessment. At a meeting to stop Al-Qaeda influence in Africa, which one of my colleagues may have been to, held in Timbuktu in March of 2009, these leaders explained that bin Laden's organization arrived in Africa in 2007 when the group integrated an Algerian extremist organization previously called the Salafist Group for Preaching and Jihad GSPC. Under Al-Qaeda's cooperative influence, the group rebranded itself Al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb, AQIM. Late in 2008, director, CIA Director Mike Hayden called it a serious and growing threat. Since then, AQIM has started trafficking in weapons and has established a base in northern Mali. This Al-Qaeda-related group carried out a string of killings, bombings, and other lethal attacks against Westerners and African security forces in mid-2009. More recently, it kidnapped six Europeans and has targeted Algeria in a bombing campaign. Between June 1 and July 5, 2015, 2009, the group claimed responsibility for killing a British hostage in Mali and an American aid worker in Mauritania, burying a senior Malian army officer in his home and ambushing a convoy of nearly two dozen Algerian paramilitary forces, raising fears that AQIM may be on the verge of even deadlier attacks. According to General Ward, and reconfirmed recently by Military Intelligence Chief Lieutenant General Mike Maples, Al-Shabaab's influence is on the increase, too. Al-Shabaab continues to release propaganda highlighting its shared ideology with Al-Qaeda, suggesting, Maple said, that a formal merger announcement is forthcoming. The Al-Shabaab connection is particularly worrisome because the Salafi Jihadist group is actively recruiting American citizens. According to an FBI report, young men of Somali descent have been banishing from Minnesota and other Midwestern states, and my guess is Ohio might be one of those, and heading for Somalia, terrorist training camps run by Al-Shabaab, which means the youth in Arab. One of them has already carried out suicide bombings in Africa, and others are believed to be forming terrorist cells to hit targets in Europe and the United States. According to some experts, a possible union with Al-Qaeda makes that scenario even likelier. Other affiliated groups in Africa include Islamic Egyptian Jihad, Jihad Group in Egypt, Moroccan Islamic Combat Group, GICM in Morocco, and the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group in Libya. GICM is suspected of orchestrating the 2004 Madrid bombings, killing 191 people, and being involved in the 2003 Casablanca bombings, which killed 33. The Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, founded in 1995 by veterans of the war against Soviet forces in Afghanistan, has been linked to Al-Qaeda. In May 2008, Colonel Gaddafi released 90 imprisoned members of this group, saying that they had reformed. According to the West Point Combating Terrorism Center's Harmony Project analysis, Al-Qaeda almost certainly continues to main cells in Kenya, which is riddled with corruption and has marginalized Islamic minority along the Swahili coast and the border with Somalia. In fact, the young driver who drove me from the airport yesterday, uh, I guess, left Somalia and he was three. 
and uh, lived in Kenya in one of the camps uh, before coming to the United States. It's interesting that uh, he was born in Somalia, but he was asking me about Somalia because I had actually been to more places in Somalia than he had. In fact, the Harmony Project forecast Al-Qaeda-sponsored terrorism in Kenya is being greater than Al-Shabaab in Somalia. CTC analysts, analysis contends that Al-Qaeda operatives continue to move about the country freely, establish businesses along the coast of Nairobi, operate Islamic charities, find local brides, rent light aircraft to come and go from Somalia, hold meetings, communicate with Al-Qaeda and outside the country, transfer money, stockpile weapons, and engage in undetected and reconnoitering of possible targets. However, Of all the Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups, AQIM is the closest and most dangerous to West Africa, in my view. According to the London Times, Western intelligence and diplomatic sources concur that AQIM's mission is to create an arc of influence throughout North Africa by spreading Osama bin Laden's brand through fusion of disparate extremist groups. According to AQIM's leader, Abu Musab Abdel Wadud, who is also known as, I can't pronounce his name, AQIM's commitment to jihad extends far beyond North Africa. We say that it's our duty to join Al-Qaeda so that we may have, we can have our fight under one flag and one leadership in order to get ready for the confrontation, he said in an audio tape response to questions sent to him by the New York Times in 2008. So how about Al-Qaeda in West Africa? Well, I don't find much Al-Qaeda in West Africa. I think there's this notion, so I'll try and say now, because Islam is the fastest growing religion in Western Africa, and that the economic and social environment is conducive for terrorist recruitment and activity. Many experts presume that there is a linkage, direct linkage between West African Muslims and terrorists, and those anti-Western Muslims may provide sanctuary to terrorists. The truth is, or based on my research, is that other than engaging in West African diamonds uh, trade and speculation that Al-Qaeda is in the drug business, I can find very little evidence of actual Al-Qaeda or other Salafi jihadist activity in West Africa. Al-Qaeda's diamond smuggling operations in West Africa collaborated by the FBI and the UN. The trade in diamonds Trade in diamonds used by terrorist groups begun under the protection of former Liberian strongman Charles Taylor, and George, you probably know quite a bit about that, continues despite international efforts to curb it. It is known that Al-Qaeda has smuggled diamonds from Sierra Leone and sold them in Liberia. It has also been reported that Al-Qaeda purchased between $30 million and $50 million worth of diamonds from the former Liberian president during, eight, during the eight months prior to 9-11. So it appears that Al-Qaeda was involved in two-way diamond trade with Taylor, playing the middleman. Interestingly, Hezbollah has been using diamonds from West Africa to find out finance activities since its successfully embedding its financial structure in the Lebanese diaspora in the diamond trade. Perhaps the most concerning is that Al-Qaeda operatives plugged into the Hezbollah network, and I'm sure in that section that you didn't talk about, it's quite clear in there about the relationship between criminal cartels and terrorists. Uh, bridging the divide between Shiite and Sunni Muslims. 
Al-Qaeda's foray into West Africa's lucrative drug trafficking has been a matter of speculation for some time. This supposition is not without merit, as Al-Qaeda's history in Afghanistan, drug trafficking operations is well documented. For example, former drug czar and my friend General Barry McCaffrey, who consulted with U.S. and NATO officials in July of last year, wrote in a recent report that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are principally funded by what some estimate to be $800 million a year derived from a huge $4 billion annual illegal production and export of opium, heroin, and cannabis. Certainly lack of infrastructure, weak political systems, ineffective security forces, and insufficient justice systems, which have left West Africa vulnerable to drug cartels, has also made it susceptible to the possibility the possibility that terrorists could further infiltrate the region. However, it has been difficult to obtain concrete evidence that the illegal drug trade in West Africa is financing terrorism. I was at an organization called the Asymmetric Warfare Group just last week, sat with them for a whole morning, and had them tell me blatantly that this was going on, this drug was going on. And I said, show me. And all they can show me is suspicion, based on premises that Al-Qaeda does this other places. And they went in graphic detail about how you know, it comes over from South America and goes north, and when we teach this out in Mountain. But I say, well, show me, give me the proof that Al-Qaeda's involved, and they can't do it. They can't do it. And I don't even think they can do it in classified form. So I think... I, th I think my analysis is correct. All right, so how much time do I have, George? I'm not paying any bills, so well, I... Well, you owe time, but I can give you five more minutes. But, uh, I can do this. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Here we go. I'm going into warp speed right now. <laughs> I'm going into warp speed. If you want to go to sleep, that's fine. I will wake you up at the end. All right? So I have a little Nigeria case study here. Some experts contend that Nigeria faces terrorist threats in the north from Muslim extremists intent on driving all Western infidel influences out of the region. And in the South, where a mix of separatists, criminal gangs, and economic insurgents have been attacking the nation's oil infrastructure for profit and political gain. However, in my opinion, and in both circumstances, terrorism may not be the causal factor. Doug Farah, a noted Africa expert and much quoted in this paper, insists that Al-Qaeda allied groups are operating in northern Nigeria. According to Farah, there is a large and radicalized Muslim population in northern Nigeria, where 12 out of 36 Nigerian states have imposed Sharia law. Radicalization, says Farah, is mixed with a deep sense of historic grievance against the South and the central government, as well as antagonism toward the sizable Christian population in the north. Farah does agree that not all Muslims in the north are radicalized. Well, I'm glad that he does. Nor are all seeking a violent change in the state system. However, those in the league of the new self-proclaimed Nigerian Taliban are, he says, and want to push Sharia law to more extreme form. The Islamist fighters are thought to belong to a group known as Boko Haram. Did I get that right? I speak Chinese, you know. This, these names kill me sometimes. <laughs> Which means Western education is sin. Is that true? The group wants Western-based education banned and wants to establish Sharia law across Nigeria, a country of 150 million people that is evenly split between Muslims and Christians. 
They appear to be the direct descendants of the previously active Nigerian Taliban that emerged in 2003. The spiritual leader of Nigeria's seven, however, the Nigerian's 70 million Muslims would disagree with Farah's assessment. Neither the Al-Qaeda group nor the Taliban movement exist in northern Nigeria, said the Sultan of Sokoto, Al-Haji Mohamedou Saad Abu Bakr. Pretty close. Good friend of yours, I'm sure. In 2007, the Sultan, who is constantly briefed on such sensitive matters, says that no suggestion or complaints had reached him in respect to reported Al-Qaeda activities. So, I'm not sure. Violence between Muslims and Christians in Nigeria should be taken seriously. Many of us in this room were in Jos a year and a half ago, right before about 400 people were killed. Violence between these two groups has occurred in Jos, capital of the Plexus, resulting in thousands of deaths in 2001, and then again in 2008 when 400 were killed. Both were destabilizing events requiring Nigerian military intervention. However, the cause of the violence may be, in my view, more anthropologically related than terrorism-related. And what do I mean? In my view, communal violence in Nigeria is more about competition for resources, such as land, between those that see themselves as indigenous to an area and those that are considered to be more recent settlers. I ask us to consider that you know one of the closest predominantly Christian states to share boundaries with the predominantly Muslim North is a plateau state, where Christian Tariq farmers are regarded as indigenous and cattle herding, house speaking Muslims are the settlers. Thus pushed by the encroaching Sahara Desert, six kilometers a day, correct? Muslims are moving south. They just happen to be cattle herders moving south, they just happen to be Muslims. So I view this as an anthropological problem as much as a religious or a terrorism problem. In southern Nigeria, the movement for the emancipation of the Niger Delta, as you mentioned, has challenged the central government and oil companies since 2006. And I'll fast forward here. But you call them correctly. They are criminals, they are economic terrorists. But try as people might there is really no connectivity between Al-Qaeda and men, in my view. All right. Go ahead, one minute? Two. Two minutes. Okay. I'm going to fast forward. In my opinion, despite the golden opportunities for terrorist expansion in West Africa, Al-Qaeda and like-minded groups have not yet made great inroads in the region. Corruption, poverty, lack of education, poor infrastructure and governance, porous borders, and other factors Helpful to Al-Qaeda infiltration exists in West Africa, so why hasn't Al-Qaeda been more successful in the region? Three, re three reasons come to mind. First, Salafi jihadist ideology, doctrine, may not be compatible with West African traditions. While Islam is the fastest growing religion on the African subcontinent, mystical and often syncretic variants of Sufi Islam are the predominant strains of the religion in West Africa. Non-liberal sects such as Wahhabism which is more in line with Al-Qaeda ideology, has found a growing audience in East Africa in the Horn that does not seem to resonate in West Africa. Second, the relation between extremism and jihadist terrorism in Nigeria, particularly in Nigeria, is regarded to be local versus international. Muslims in Nigeria who are considered followers of jihadist movement are currently conducting local insurgent or terrorist activity. 
This is an indication that West African militants may not be interested in global Islam, in the globalism struggle, but in their local causes. And the third is not politically correct, but Al-Qaeda is predominantly Arab, and many West Africans do not trust Arabs. This is my experience from being in West Africa. I think it's part of their culture and dates from slave trading days. While Arab slave traders' area of operation was East Africa, it is not lost on West Africans that Arabs traded more than 11 million Africans between 600 and 1800. In modern terms, Darfur is an example of the racial schism between Northern Muslim Arabs and Southern Christian Black Africans. The deep racial and ethnic animus and the savage attack sponsored by the Sudanese government, Arab, on Black African tribal groups has been made clear by the United Nations, Amnesty International, International Crisis Group, and a myriad of other news reports. We've left about 135,000 civilians fleeing. Okay, U.S. security toward Africa. I did not like this part of the, because you already gave it. You already gave it. So I'm just going to talk about U.S. counterterrorism policy, if that's okay. And it's easy. The Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Initiative is the U.S. government's oh, I missed it slide. Is the U.S. government's long-term interagency plan to address terrorist threats in Northwest Africa? The primary goal of the program is to enhance local military's capability to police and national borders and repel terrorist threats. Secondary goal is to enhance regional cooperation, increase information sharing, and to encourage policy goals that the United States considers necessary. It was initiated in 2005 and replaced the Pan-Sahel Initiative that was a State Department-run initiative in 2002. To show that the United States, I think, is fairly serious, the initial uh, tranche of funding was $500 million and to be, uh, and then with multiple $100 million increments every year. The overall approach of TSCTI is straightforward. Build indigenous capacity and facilitate cooperation among willing partner governments in the region, Algeria, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, Morocco, Niger, Senegal, Nigeria, and Tunisia, in the struggle with Islamist extremism in the Sahel region. TSCTI is designed to strengthen regional counterterrorism capabilities, enhance and institutionalize cooperation among the region's security forces, promote democratic governance, rule of law, and many of the things that you mentioned. There are some problems, I think, with this particular approach, and it may be viewed as too militaristic, securitization, uh, and also, you know, often, sometimes, you've got to be careful about who you train. Uh, for example, seven, for several years, members of the 3rd and 10th Special Forces Groups have been conducting these types of missions to Niger to modernize and build the capacity of the Niger military units, particularly quick response units. Unfortunately, loyalty to the units trained by Special Forces might have changed, as uncorroborated reports claim that the entire Niger Rapid Intervention Company trained to conduct counter-terror operations defected to the Niger movement for justice and masters. So what are my conclusions? Clearly the conditions for Al-Qaeda and other Salafi jihadist expansion in West Africa exist. These exploitable conditions were golden opportunities in Al-Qaeda's lexicon through poverty, corruption, poor governance, poor wars. I've mentioned all of them. However, and surprisingly, despite these golden opportunities, Al-Qaeda and like-minded groups have not been able to set up, operate freely in West African countries. And factors that I mentioned, uh, the three factors, Muslims eschewing ultra-conservative religious ideology, historical animosities and ethnic tensions against Arabs may be important factors in inhibiting Al-Qaeda-related expansion, and 
U.S. counterterrorism initiatives, such as the initiatives such as TSCTI, may have also helped. I'm sorry, sir, I went a little bit over. That's fine, General. Thank you very much. Be careful of those noxious weeds. They might be coming to the pile. All right. Find a bit. For this morning's session is a joint presentation by Dean Minix, who is Dean of the College of Liberal Arts at Tallington State, and Benjamin Prince, who is a professor of history at Wilmington College. Thank you very much. Dr. Kalu and the staff of the Murchon Center, let me please extend my thanks to all of you, or as we say in Texas, to y'all, with heartfelt thanks. I mean this. Because it's been a treat to be here today on several different plateaus. First of all, this is the first time, and some of you may not know this, that Dr. Kalu and I have ever agreed on anything except the words for the national anthem. His very insightful paper, in addition to the other two insightful papers, and I use the word insightful for a reason, and they are just that, only because they agree with our paper. So we can start drinking beer. Thank you, General. Now here it is. The sun is over the yard arm somewhere. But in all seriousness, I just don't know how these gentlemen could have racked the balls on this pool table any better for us. And so all Dr. Prince and I are going to do is to re-rack them in the same position that we found them, maybe putting a few in different order. If you know anything about me or my background, you will know first and foremost I am not an Africanist in the traditional sense. So I am the duck out of water, so to speak, General. I come through this, or come to this rather, from a national security perspective. And it's very fortuitous that our presentation follows the General's presentation because after having used his book for lo these many years, he has conditioned my thinking unconsciously perhaps, but his perspective on this war is the same as I tell my class. So General, I'm appreciative for convergent validation. I will go back and indeed tell my future classes that there is no such war on terror as I've told them before. On the other hand, if you're the President, how do you package and sell this thing? It's not very snappy to say we're going to have a war on a tactic, but I get ahead of myself. Our paper investigates some of the geopolitical issues of the African subcontinent and how they interact and interconnect within the regional context of the larger frame of reference in the global war on terror, or as some prefer, the long war. The level of analysis is a geostrategic one insofar as this regional war on terror, or ARWAT, in the sub-Saharan African region connects within the larger context of the global war on terror, as I said. We conclude by stating that the two drivetrains of American policy in sub-Saharan Africa are anti-terrorism and natural resources, principally oil. From an African lens, however, the new Obama administration is expected perhaps even must 
give greater consideration of the continent's issues and concerns given this Kenyan heritage. But other issues such as the current global economic recession and the interactions with and by the players such as Russia, China, Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan rush to the global center stage, thereby pushing sub-Saharan Africa and the African continent to the side once again. Now, we will not ask George to revise and extend our remarks. We will be brief. It is perhaps noteworthy that one of the leading open source web uh, intelligence sources, Stratfor.com, uh, devotes only a scant page to the sub-Saharan African strategic concerns in its recent annual report. This scintilla of data is important nonetheless because it demonstrates the low-level visibility that the sub-Saharan African regional war on terror has on the analyst radar as part of the global war on terror. In point of fact, the United States Africa Command, or AFRICOM, which is one of six of the Defense Department's regional military headquarters, was only most recently declared a fully unified command on October 1 of last year, just about a year ago. Therefore, it is fair to say that sub-Saharan African regional security threats are not notoriously high on the American strategic agenda, and this will probably continue to be so for the foreseeable future, mostly undetectable ground chatter on the sub-radar screens. I will now turn the presentation over to Dr. Prince. Excuse me, I've never touched one of these things in my life. <laughs> and I think I am the senior person in the room. Uh, I, too, come uh, to this subject from a somewhat different perspective. Uh, my initial interest in Africa was the age of the new imperialism. Um, I think it's too kind to call America's foreign policy tradition toward any part of Africa benign. There's salutary neglect, there's benign neglect, and then there's just flat-out neglect. Uh, we have a sort of backhanded, we don't really want to admit it's there, uh, traditional interest in Liberia, uh, our stepchild of a sort. Uh, I lived in uh, southwest Mississippi for five years, and uh, there's some interesting frames of uh, parallelism down there. Uh, I would respectfully disagree that we could have thrown much weight around in Berlin in 84, 85, we didn't have a lot of weight in 84, 85. Uh, we are an emerging nation in 1984, 85, uh, in many respects. Uh, we have, as they say in Texas, potential. Uh, but it's not been, it's, that's not really realized until uh, the Europeans cut their collective wrists and throats after 1914. Uh, when the independence era arrives, we suddenly discover maybe we should have a policy. Uh, I remember that era well. I was a schoolboy. Uh, well, actually, I was getting out of high school and going through college and graduate school. And I thought it would be uh, interesting to know something about Africa uh, and ended up 
having to do it as an independent study project because we didn't have a lick in our curriculum. Now, this was not at Virginia. We didn't have anything there either. This was my undergraduate institution. Uh, the two things that stand out from my school days are the indirect intervention in the Congo, sort of Korea with far more surrogates. And some would point to the Peace Corps, but then the Peace Corps was not an Africa-specific thing by any stretch of the imagination. And the Kennedy administration was much more interested in the uh, misnamed and mishandled lines for progress than it was with anything, anywhere in Africa. Uh, I have some friends and colleagues who served in the Corps, in the Peace Corps, uh, in West Africa. And none of my friends in the Marine Corps did from that generation. And maybe just as well. Uh, during the Nixon years, uh, which in some respects look better now than they did at the time, uh, we made an effort at a mutual understanding with the Soviets in the age of detente. Uh, that fell apart through different uh, interpretations of uh, what that term actually meant and uh, led to a number of problems. But um, we're just now trying to articulate, well, not just now, but just the, the, the second, Bush the Younger. We have, in English history, we have Pitt the Elder and Pitt the Younger. I know we, we couldn't just have Bush the Elder and Bush the Younger instead of Bush and Trump. Uh, but still, uh, in this decade, we have become somewhat more focused on a policy toward Africa. But the fact that I'm standing up here talking about Africa as though it was Ohio points out, I think, a serious flaw in how most Americans whose families have been here for a good while, and I don't care what their ethnicity is. You shouldn't tell. I'm heavily Swedish on my mother's side. I look like the prototypical Swede, don't I? Uh, Africa's just there. I have the unenviable task of teaching a geography course every year, and have since I was at Oakland A&M in Mississippi. Africa, all of my students, almost all my students, has always been just some sort of monolith instead of the incredibly diverse place that it is. And it's, well, I don't want to get started on that. Uh, it's, it's one of the real challenges. Uh, today, it seems to me, and I think Dr. Menace will agree. Um, much of our interest in our interest in West Africa and our growing interest in southwestern Africa with Angola is spelled OIL. We have a petroleum-based foreign policy that happens to include a couple of parts of Africa. We're also interested in Venezuela and Mexico for the same reason. And oh yes, there's the Gulf and there's Mesopotamia and some places like that. So we really are sailing into rather uncharted waters in this decade in terms of our foreign policy. And I will turn this little wonderful thing back to Dr. Mix and let him explain where he thinks and I think we're going. Not that, I'm, not that I'm going to chart any new waters, necessarily.
we go through a paper, as you can see behind me, and I'm not going to take much time in doing this because everyone in this room can read, but the paper contains several synopses of some of the nations that we discuss, Angola, South Africa. Ethiopia and Somalia. So let me now talk about some other considerations, AFRICOM and the U.S. military priorities in Africa. Um, security assistance programs are a high priority in Africa for the new administration. A State Department official declared on February the 9th of this year. Um, this individual, Secretary Carter, then went on to list four priorities for the new Obama administration in Africa. I would like for you to think and juxtapose in your minds the Obama administration's priorities vis-a-vis -vis the prior administration's priorities and see how they vary, if they do. First, he says, providing security assistance programs that are critical to securing the objectives of a peaceful African continent. He said, secondly, promoting democratic systems and practices. We are engaged in supporting the rise of freedom and democracy on the continent. Thirdly, our foreign policy priority is promoting sustainable and broad-based market-led economic growth. And finally, U.S. foreign policy priority in Africa is promoting health and social development. Security democracy, markets, and health. These are the pillars of the current administration, but security still ranks first, as it did with the Bush administration. The creation of AFRICOM is evidence that the security interests in the, of the U.S. in the continent were not being met. 
America's strategic concerns in Africa that AFRICOM will address are as follows. Fostering maritime security and stability in the oil-rich Gulf of Guinea, combating piracy off the horn, denying sanctuary to international terrorist organizations, undermining the spread of radical Islam in the horn and across North Africa. In conclusion, George, how much time do I have? Still have five minutes. Thank you. The two drive trains of American policy in sub-Saharan Africa are anti-terrorism and natural resources, principally oil. From an African lens, however, the new Obama administration is, as I said before, uh, expected to give greater consideration to the continent's interests and issues than all other predecessors perhaps combined. But it is significant that the U.S. Army War College's key strategic issues list of 2007 does not mention the Long War or GWAT at all. The following year's list, however, in 2008, puts GWAT at the top of the list of concerns in the stability and security role of Africa's regional powers. Nigeria, Ethiopia, Kenya, and South Africa are listed as 16th or last. As some commentators and analysts contend, I quote, the anti-terrorism campaign in the sub-Sahara uh, region is one of subtle manipulation rather than overt intervention. In some respects, it is similar to U.S.-backed military operations in Latin America. The United States is again taking charge of fighting terrorism in Africa, but its nearly hands-off approach focuses on using local security forces and intelligence efforts to identify and route out suspected Islamist Salafist militants. This influence over local governments and regional powers is achieved through a combination of indirect military aid, U.S. military training, and joint small-scale raids. One of the darker byproducts of security assistance in sub-Saharan Africa is the proliferation of African mercenaries onto the world scene as well-trained professional soldiers who seek to profit from their unique skills. Regardless of these minor setbacks and obstacles, putting American, or putting African rather, security forces on the front lines of Western military operations is the tactic of choice for the United States and other international powers who can take the anti-terrorism fight to the continent without getting bogged down in sectarian violence that is rife throughout the region. The salient issues of American policymakers' minds, on American policymakers' minds, towards this region again remain anti-terrorism and natural resources. Geographically, this means West Africa and the Horn. The rest of Sub-Saharan Africa is virtually undetectable or blipless on American warning scopes. From Bush to Obama, there is consistency in American foreign policy regardless of the policy of power or party in power. The key sub-Saharan states in the Bush administration were Ethiopia, Nigeria, and South Africa. Angola, while no partner with the United States in an emerging, or excuse me, Angola, while no partner with the United States, is an emerging regional hegemon. These four key states will undoubtedly also underlay the Obama administration's policy in sub-Saharan Africa. What may be a break, uh, what may be an Obama break in such policy consistency might be found in the current administration's evolving counterterrorism policy and future events that may precipitate action. This is the subject that we need to concentrate on for the future. Thank you very much. Well,
thanks to all our presenters. We have uh, about 40 minutes for questions, comments, and discussions. So you can make your comments or pose your questions. I suggest very briefly to any of our presenters. Where do we start? No one has any Oh, yeah. Okay. So, you have a question, Kevin? A comment? Yeah, my question will go to General Russell. Uh, you have said no one in this room has been uh, personally affected in terms of life loss as a result of the war on terror. Uh, how would you react to, would that be plausible if we think about? the economic dimension of the war on terror and its effect, both on U.S. economy and global economy, where many people's retirement accounts have been lost and has had direct impacts on phones and That presupposes that you think that the economic problem that we have today is directly related to the war on terror and 9-11. I mean, most economists I know would probably tell you that it has more to do bad mortgages to people that couldn't pay them back, and it has to do with, I mean, arguably the billions of dollars we're spending on, on the campaign against terror. I mean, early after 9-11, it's quite clear that the economy suffered a blow, but it recovered within nine months, uh, except for the, air, for the airline industry. So, you know, when I say that no one here has, has been affected by the, not in the World War II sense, where you're... <coughs> You know, your kids are saving chewing gum wrapper and turning it in. I mean, there was a there was a United States effort uh, amongst all Americans to defeat the enemy, and that certainly isn't the case uh, today. I don't want to uh, uh, please don't let me. But my comments. I mean, if you have lost a loved one in the effort, it's a very serious war. I mean, it's a serious problem. But what I mean is by our everyday lives, I don't think it's been affected. When we get up in the morning, the first thing we think, don't think about is what's the news going to be from the, in fact, Iraq now is on page 22 most of the time, unless it's something like happened the other day. So I'll stick with my Thank you, George. I couldn't agree more. Someone said this better than I could ever. America's not a war. America's at the mall. <laughs> I could chip it from memory. Um, no one calls my seven-month-old grandchildren coupons. When I was born, I was called a coupon. So I was born in 1943. And uh, we were collecting scrap assiduously during the Korean War. We are now, with all this neurotic emphasis on recycling, I'm sorry, it just is different. And the biggest personal effect that the entire last few years of foreign policy has had on me is to run up the cost of ammunition. It's outrageous what this stuff costs now. And, yeah, I can live with that. Uh, but when, after 9-11, my students just were full of questions about, are we going to get drafted? 
They don't know what it's like to get a reclassification card every six months. Or a card. Yes, they don't even know what a card is. I, I got, at a ridiculously old age, somebody asked me to show them an identity card if you'd like to buy beer. And, you know, I was pushing 50. It was, somebody told them, card everybody. I showed her my draft card. She never seen one. So, Mr. Carter's moral equivalent of war. They're close to that. Uh, it's an inconvenience. Uh, and, and that's all. I guess you notice George just said he joined us, so we're not shipping it. We go a little ways back. I happen to be from Liberia, too. And uh, I come to this conference here thanking everybody here for this exposition. Um, I, I did serve as the youngest member of the Liberian legislature at one time. I did a commission for reform for Liberia on the current program. And I thank Secretary Brader for being so useful to Liberia. But I'm very quiet on a number of things. However, most of the, the speakers this morning so far, and I just want to toss this out, I've touched very briefly on one element that I'm thinking is security issue, and I want to offer this if wrong. It's missing. The historicality of the relationships between the United States and Africa. You know, we, we, even among Africans, we don't position ourselves apparently to grab a hold of that historicality prior to the Berlin Conference in Europe. Francis Scott Key, in his elaborate Congress of 1817 in his diary, speaks about the empire of the United States in Africa. We have, in America, we've forgotten that connection from back then. The American Colonization Society was not founded for the purpose of slaves <coughs> in Africa. It was the empire of the United States in Africa. The original meeting of the, of the white men in that room with President Madison present, white men said nothing about slavery and slaves into Africa. It was the expansion of America from 1812, and of course America gave it away for the Monroe Doctrine and the Berlin Conference divided Africa. After the United States, like I always say, there's a monograph on my website about this, that America had first lived in Africa between 1812 and 1880. If America was founded under principles of the Scottish Enlightenment, so was Liberia. But we as Liberians allow for the fact that slaves and free slaves founded Liberia. Nothing is further from the truth. But we as Africans have a lot of these myths. We don't dig and grab a hold of the history. And the issue of denying neglect may be a more two-sided approach rather than one. Is terror really a problem? It's not a problem for Africa. It's that we're angry as people as to not being part and being denied the process of being part of a bigger world. And I just would like to kind of toss that out and want, I'm going to be here for the next few hours and a few days listening. There are some exciting things coming down the road that um, a few of us quietly are looking at. And um, we don't necessarily believe there's a conflict between the United States and Africa. We don't. We feel it's an incomplete world process that 100 years is overdue. And I would like just to toss that out on the issue of the 90 like, This is a two-way street, and I think George may address that. Thanks, George.
Don't forget to do for your right. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and uh, thanks everybody. As I listened to these comments, and I was struck by Vinton's uh, very emotional way of getting us out, and I was looking at him this day so right. Um, and I almost thought, see, 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 there's, there's, there's a huge elephant in this, right? and hopefully, Jedi will give you a presentation. Um, I hope you're going to get it to me. One of the problems we have as academics, quite frankly, is that we deal very often with uh, finished products, okay? Uh, published works, uh, clinical comments. The problem I find in U.S. relations with Africa is that a lot of the issue is wrong. Uh, uh, and we, we have no access to them. And yet, it is very It's not benign like that. It's, it's complete. I like that. And why is that? I, I attended a meeting last December in APL, from Sarando, Washington, Germany. And a lot of what we do with Africa preparing for the government discussion. How can we There was a second hesitation. Everyone knew what we really should do. It's not It's a lack of uh, constituency for Africa in the United States. And how do you get around that? I don't know. But we should be able to deal with that. And then it comes to us Africans, the two-way thing about being like that. Watch African leaders come to the United States to promote their agenda. They bypass the entire diaspora. They bypass even their own citizens who live in Africa. They head straight to the White House, have coffee, put their airplane and go back. And they think, what, where do they think they are? What do they think they can accomplish? Um, we have to address that strategy. And I just want to put that on the table. If these meetings are going to mean something, it should be able to address strategically how to move from point A to point B. And guide those who make those processes and decisions. Thanks. Well, mine was a, should have been a two finger um, to pick up on the issue of the global war on terror terminology, and I, and I think it's you know I think we can sort of recognize that maybe it's not a war in the traditional sense of war. Um, and, and that terrorism is a tactic. I take the point, General, what you're saying. Uh, but I think that it's important to recognize the mobilize. It's not just to mobilize the world after 9-11, but actually to create an architecture, a global architecture, so that all states saw it as a, an obligation of, of statehood as such to, in fact, take on uh, trans, trans, um, international terrorists. And, and, and so, you know, for me in this conference, it's, it's, it's that we can talk about how the terminology <coughs> impacts our effectiveness, and I think we should talk about that. But I think if you situated back in 2001, using the term was effective because because it got UN Security Council Resolution 1373 passed, which created an infrastructure, you know, a global infrastructure for addressing this problem. It, 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 it meant that the Financial Action Task Force moved from focusing primarily on money laundering to also taking up anti-terror financing. And so that, that mobilization tactic was effective and necessary, and it's a platform on which we now build. 
the question becomes for the Obama administration, because I don't think that, you know, we should just assume that everything's going to be better because there's an Obama administration. It's what is the terminology that's necessary to continue that collective action and to allow us to be far more effective. You know, so it, it, it's, it's the, the point is, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, um, there was a reason for it, and it was effective. Now it may be counter-effective or, 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 or um, not as useful. What do we do next? I, I would like to put the terminology in that perspective it, as we go forward in the um, uh, during this meeting, not, not just sort of, these things actually have usefulness. Um, but it may have outlived it's worth talking about. Yeah, it's just because we, you know, all of us who rem remember and love the Cold War and, <laughs> and we had a strategy, it was containment, it was easy. So what we like to do in this country is we like to have an overarching strategy that's going to take care of all this stuff. But I got news, Al-Qaeda is not Hezbollah. Hezbollah is not Hamas. Hamas is not the FARC. The FARC is not Abu Sayyaf. Abu Sayyaf is not Jamal Islamiyah, although they're close. And if you try and deal with all of these disparate organizations with the same strategy, you're going to fail. What we need to do in this country is disaggregate our counter-terror policy, and we need to address each one of these terrorist groups individually, not collectively. Because if you try and address Hezbollah in the same way you do Abu Al-Qaeda, they're very different groups with very different objectives. Hezbollah is very different than Al-Qaeda. So I mean, I'm, I'm more convinced than ever in my, my state that it has been calling it a global war on terrorism and trying to address it like you would containment of in a sort of Cold War fashion, I think has led us down uh, the wrong road. such pressure at home about 
the so-called global war on terrorism and the United Kingdom's participation in that war. But with Britain being an important partner in this effort, uh, in your sense, why, why didn't the United States pursue the same kind of, 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 uh, of action in terms of uh, trying to limit the negative impact of the wordings? Uh, it's too late. The President, President Bush tried on many occasions to emphasize that global war on terrorism was not a war on religion. You look at eight, nine, ten major speeches when he said that. But it, it was too late. You know, when the President of the United States says things for our benefit, we forget that other people listen. For example, if your policy is you can run but you can't hide, but you have run and you've hidden, what does that say about your policy? It's a six-letter word, begins with an F and ends with a D. <laughs> Flaw. Fail. I know what you were thinking. <laughs> I know what you were thinking. <laughs> now, I know you're, you're shaking your head. No, because I think that we, we can trivialize the, the issue and, you know, and make fun when it's a very serious issue we're talking about. What I said was, it may have been effective in 2001. It may not be effective in 2010. What would make it effective in 2010? You know, and we haven't yet talked about what is that terminology. It's very clear that Al Qaeda, which was the real target in 2001, has franchised. It's 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 it's, it's, it's morphed. It's changed. We need to do the same, and we need to do the same in our terminology. The Al Qaeda that we were uh, uh, fighting in 2001 is not the same thing that we're fighting in 2010. I agree with you 100%. Right, so let's look at what is the terminology. There may not be one term like global war on terror or long war or containment. There may not be, my argument is, there probably isn't one term that's going to encompass what we face. So we've got to deal with the reality of different terms, different organizations, different possibilities. Right. At the same time that you're trying to mobilize international action, mobilize domestic focus and attention, <coughs> and, and that doesn't translate very well in the media side of this, which is what Al-Qaeda is very effective at, in terms of saying, well, there's multiple, well, it's really a nuisance, well, this is not that. And that complexity doesn't translate. So the policymaker is charged with trying to create some type of... You know, I don't, you have to I don't disagree. Just let me. So you can come here. I like this debate. <laughs> By calling it, look, what many states have learned is because we have a global war on terrorism. If you put terrorism in your That's foreign right. policy That's aid right. request, That's right. you might get something. Not only might you, you probably will get something. Not sure, but you might. All right. General. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, Dr. Adidi, just two very quick questions. One, it seems to me, as in most of the times, Africa used to blame all the problems they have on the colonial masters. Don't you really think that Africa has been the architect of its own failure? They can't still be the architect of the 
their success. I'm not disagreeing with the first issue, the fact that there was an impact, and probably that impact still exists to today. But I believe that in terms of human resources, material resources, we have the capacity to have evolved from that shape to a new world, Africa. Two, do you think that the relationship between the Americans, white, and the slave, the black slave in America, do you think it could be responsible for the reason why, up to now, America's interest in Africa is virtually negligible? Well, let me let me add. Conan, you have a related question, or do you have a different question? So at least you can go ahead and respond, and you can ask. My question goes in line with uh, what General Howard is talking about. Okay, well, respond then to Conan, then you got it. You. Okay. Thanks, General. Um, let me begin with the second question. Truly, it's Liberia gives us an insight into that. 
And that leads to a second question. And, 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 and so that, that's really where I am. I may be wrong. But I think, yes, Africa can be an actor, but it can be the law in his heart. Who can do that? But it's the United States. If Europeans bank on the United States to help them in terms of foreign direct investment, and I'm looking forward to my sister's presentation there, economic actors, largest recipients of American investments, Europeans. Okay? We see that in China. Where is the American investment in Africa? Where is the private capital? So, so, yes, Africans can do that. We, we do need the United States. And we haven't seen that, the positive path. And that's the challenge. Thanks. You say you want to agenda and... Uh, yes, I'm thinking to write more to the for instance. Well, if they want to. I hope they will. Genius for eggs. I suppose I'd answer with a definite maybe. Uh, it, it's a factor. But <coughs> I don't think it's I don't think it's the primary factor. Uh, the traditional foreign policy establishment for most of our history <coughs> was not rooted in the South. It was rooted in well, it was rooted in the Northeast, uh, specifically an almost vanished breed, <coughs> liberal Republicans. I may be the last one standing. No, there's two. <laughs> okay, three. There's John McCain. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, John McCain. Uh, uh, I, I think it's more complex than uh, a hangover from. From slavery, well, that, that's certainly a factor. Uh, given where the United States was economically at whatever point you want to look prior to the interwar period, the 20s, uh, the needs of our economy and the opportunities for our economy seems to me we're not primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, we were an exporter of raw materials for most of the 19th century and an importer of manufactured goods. Uh, my mother's father was a skilled machinist, union member. He owned virtually no American tools. They were junk. His tools were made in Germany and made in Britain. And the things we take the South before and after the Civil War. We're exporting cotton. Is there a big market for cotton in West Africa or in Angola? No. Uh, so I think a lot of our policy toward particularly sub-Saharan Africa was conditioned by economic factors and access. Uh, the fiscal geography of Africa makes it a hard place to deal with to trade with, except along the fringes, until relatively modern times. Uh, so, if, if if the Congo had was the Mississippi, we probably would have done more in West Central Africa than we did. But it's not. 
the fall line is real close to the shore, as everybody knows. Uh, and so it, it's a, there are some ge ge geographical obstacles. Uh, there are some health and climate obstacles that made the place inhospitable. I mean, doesn't didn't Sierra Leone issue a stamp about 40 years ago commemorating the mosquito? They killed the British troops that were there to protect them, for gosh sakes. Uh, now, I admire a sense of humor, but still, um, I, I think there's some, some deeper-seated reasons, but in the back of our minds, that's part of it. I, I, that's how I would I would put it, and I don't care if there's another part to the question or not. I hope not. Okay. okay just very briefly, I don't think you can answer that question. It's just one of those unanswerable questions. I think whatever slice of history, you can take a slice here, and answer definitively yes. You could take another slice there and say probably not. I just think it's I think it's very difficult. I do think that racism uh, impacts continuing stereotypes about Africa. Um, I, I definitely believe that, uh, but I also think certain things in Africa also create and allow those stereotypes to continue as well. Um, and so I, I just think it's one of those questions that's just really too hard. Um, to to come to any kind of clear, um, you know, most questions are, but I think that's particularly one um, difficult. You could also say who's in the room. Um, uh -huh. You know, you could say, you know, what are considered core interests and how do you define them. I just think it's very difficult uh, to answer. I will say definitively, I don't think that Obama being uh, having a father from Kenya is going to have anything at all to do with our Africa policy. That, that, that I will say to Okay. Well, there's a lot of topics in between there. That one I want to come back to. Uh, my comments were, were toward uh, Ms. Fraser and uh, Reader Joe Howard. I didn't put down uh, what I do in the brochure. Um, I'm not in the habit of normally doing that. My name's Lieutenant Colonel Phil Spangler. So I do a quick introduction. I work for the Joint Special Operations Task Force Trans-Sahara under the uh, Special Operations Command Africa. I'm an information operations director for the unit, and I control all civil military operations, psychological operations, and information operations in 11 country areas. Um, I've been doing this job along with working in um, the Special Forces for 1st Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group for two years as the, uh, as the civil military advisor and commander. Um, and originally helped write some of the first uh, counterterrorism plans for South Africa, when uh, it was the Panzhell Initiative, which I conducted the first and the second Panzhell Initiative and then became part of the OEFTS. What does it all mean? The answer to what Madam said and the General said is they're both correct. It's a time-phased operation, and then what we, Ms. Frazier said is that, you know, terrorism framework for, um, for funding operations and realigning initiatives, that was the tool for the day. Um, however, people like you know, General Howard and myself have looked at these issues many times, and I've sat in my office, and I've been in West Africa for nine years and tried to figure it out. I've sat in virtually every counterterrorism planning operation and watched the military, with all the technology that we have, watch the people on the ground. Um, we could have probably been well served just to pay some local people to go kill all the people that needed to be killed a long time ago at a lot less cost. Uh, however, engaging uh, what has become a guerrilla warfare on a global basis that's a franchise of disaffected persons and groups 
multiplied by four tactical decisions that we've made because we're learning as, it go, as we go along because we write lessons learned but we don't read our own lessons learned. Um, and that we're faced now with a growing information war by an enemy who is the, uh, has the asymmetric ability to morph and is bringing us back to a position of where we have to understand that really what are we faced by? What are the countries faced by? They're faced by gaps in civil society where the government doesn't invest in their people and they don't know what's going on in their backyard, where they're too concerned, the leadership is, about what ethnic tribal relations and who should they put in the office instead of worrying about what's happening in the northern part of the country. In my opinion, everybody in Nigeria can have a four-year degree. One of the richest countries in West Africa, the lights we crude. I mean, let's look at Saudi Arabia. It's oil's full of sulfur. And the day that those refineries go to go to ground, it will take years to rebuild it. Well, what does it really come back to? It comes back to understanding who is the enemy. And the enemy is the common person who's on the ground who's disenfranchised and has no hope for the future. Who has been told a multitude of lies by people that have positions of authority that they have manufactured because they have no hope except to leverage others. And I think that the issue of the future is one of security threats that have to be mitigated because the criminal world now will leverage the states in West Africa and the day will come, it has come, that failing states will fail quicker due to criminal influence because of the volume of money as UNODC ports out of their favorite in their 2009 report is reached in, in millions of dollars for cocaine, the same amount almost as bunker oil from Nigeria. And so where do we go in the end? It's not the responsibility of America or the, of the Western world, it's the responsibility of the leaders of Africa to look after their own people. However, in the issues of foreign policy, I think this is where we really need to go now. Um, that's pretty much all I have to say on that issue. Can I let you? Thank you, uh, Judge, for coming back to me. With regard to the question that was posed, uh, whether racism or no racism, uh, I think, is it Robert Kagan? Just but I know Kagan wrote the book, Dangerous Nation. Uh, I like the book very much because he uses primary texts to examine the nature of historical perception, uh, policymakers' perception of the question of race. And the title of the book, Dangerous Nation, Europeans were actually the ones that called the United States Dangerous Nation. So, you know, if, you, uh, if you're looking for something to read, you might want to pick it up. That might help you uh, get to the core origin of uh, some of those policy manipulations. What concerns me is this. If we continuously insist that outsiders are responsible, should be responsible, for how we treat each other in West Africa. Are we not simultaneously saying we lack ontological capability 
to really define our own problems and find solutions for those problems. I have been privileged to have had audiences with at least four different African heads of states. And these individuals thinking about the responsibility of the office. These are the questions we need to ask. When are we going to grow up as Africans? I am not denying the fact that the external dimension is important. The question of terrorism in West Africa may not be for the children in the Niger Delta area, the children in the Republic, or even in Senegal about United States security. It's about the terrorism to their stomach. It's about the violence that they experience. If you travel as I do, not flying when you get into the continent, you take a cab and you drive through the terrain. You witness real terrorism against ordinary people. We're self negating policies continue to undermine the capacity for self-relevance. We did not forget the question about the historicity of the relationship. But I'm reminded by what happened on the 28th of September this year. We ordinary Guineans went to the stadium to celebrate their independence. It wasn't the French. It wasn't the Americans. It wasn't the British. Yes, their guns were there. It was their brothers, their sisters, raping, in other words, terrorizing women who went out there to celebrate their independence. At some point, we have to ask ourselves, what part of this are we responsible for? And I'm not speaking as an academic. I am speaking as someone who grew up as a child during the Nigerian Civil War, where I lost four members of my family where I did not leave out the promise of my childhood. When are we going to grow up to realize if the external entities give us guns, we don't have to take it. In fact, we can keep the Americans out of Nigeria, the British out of Nigeria. We can do it. We kill more with machetes than guns. Okay. <laughs> so, what is it that stops us from visiting, engaging in that terrorism that is the state, that is government officials. Thank you. And any questions? I, 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 any questions for anybody else in the audience? Questions or comments? I'm a junior for No, I haven't. So what we were talking about earlier, I was just going to ask for an assessment of the last year, since there has been a change in terminology and it's now referred to as global struggle against religious extremism, I was going to ask the group what your assessments of this now noted change in policy has been, if there have been any 
My name is Osman Kobo. I just would like to uh, thank uh, Professor Kalu for his very insightful comment, which in my opinion could have been a closing comment. But I also have a very slight uh, addition uh, to make not correction, but an extension. Uh, in as far as we look at African leaders' failure, we can also cite examples, even though those examples could be unique about leaders who have made the precise effort that Professor Kalu has suggested. <coughs> and what happened to all these leaders? They were all gone down or slain. So the internet, and when we look at it, I, I can cite several examples, but I would like to just limit uh, an example to a couple of people. We can talk about Patrick Mumba, that's too long ago. We can talk about uh, Thomas Sankara of Burkina Faso. They've made effort they were eliminated, of course, by their own people with the support of the external forces. So the external dimension is crucial. It's a crucial factor that in as much as we want to look internally for our failures, and indeed for our success in some cases, we tend to forget that we've succeeded in some cases. In as far as we want to do that, we also cannot overlook that eagle that is hovering over us and watching and dictating and intimidating we can't overlook that. Can I make a final comment? Thank you, sir. Well, well, 12 o'clock. And encouraging. Oh, thank you. And encouraging. Now, final comment. No, I, I thank you very much, Alaska. And I agree with you. Both of us grew up in this time. Nigeria during the war, and me and Niger Delta, so I think I know what I'm talking about. Look, the point, though, Kenichi, is this. As much as that is a we're dealing with this structure. And the question that I, I want to pose back to Jebeya Dunbar is, what is it about us, the United States, Africa? A key, a white kid standing in Europe, showing on TV, news mountains, in terms of power. An African kid with bloated stone, with vultures about to devour. Ah, no, it's not. That's what happens in Africa. This is not what happens in Africa. How do we explain that? Well, and I think we're going to have to confront that as a global community. How many African dead is required to make things happen in Africa, as opposed to how many whites killed in Central Asia or anywhere else is required to move mountains to make things happen? I hope you guys are going to have the answer to that. And just one final thing about why this whole international dimension of it is so important. In West Africa, general is this. ECOWAS tried to stabilize Liberia for 10 years. Spent money, a lot of men and women died. Didn't happen. John Bush turned around to you remember that? And said he wants to know out. And he wants him out now. Right? Charles Taylor would have been running around on paper for a decade. And what happened? The, the end of Taylor began that day on TV when John Bush said he wants to know out now. He left within a period of a few months, weeks. Okay? So, 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 can you problems are not so intractable and so, yeah, every country has, look, Taiwanese legislators fight all the time in the assembly. It hasn't caused the countries to collapse. I think what happens in Africa is that at the moment when Africans need help, it doesn't come. It comes late, mainly because African issues do not attract the kind of emotional response that European issues do. And I think we can't escape that. That's why these meetings are important. 
Thanks. So can I show you it's known? It's so what are you? Is it another point? Mm -hmm. It's a big, it's a up point. Okay. <laughs> 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 I'm not the one in charge. Oh, okay. He's in charge. Well, okay. uh, Joma, can you make it one? Yeah, very quick. Yeah. The point is, um, I, I love all this, and I love it. The academics are very good at these things. I'm not an academic. I'm just one of But. As Commissioner for Reform, we sent him a ruler that once, Ellen and I together, we, we asked a British small arms group. They're coming in to lecture to us about having small arms in Liberia. Wait a minute, there are no arms produced in Liberia, there are no arms produced in West Africa. Where do they come from? Your very countries. We're going to talk about terrorism, we're going to talk about the terrorist aspects into Africa. Is anybody going to give us statistics about the amount of arms and guns and bullets and small arms and things produced in the United States, Britain, Soviet Union, China, and fed into African, West African society? Liberia. I said, and I'll say it frankly, and maybe, you know, I'm going to be blunt about this. There's no secret about what Mr. Taylor came from. I know this. Very well, I know it. I also know that the U.S. Defense Department would sanction and approve arms exports into Liberia. Why? Then you turn around, and then you have to go in and talk about peacekeeping. Where are the arms? Where are the statistics? Where are the controls on the manufacturers? This is all an element of terrorism that I will hope, I would hope, we can discuss the balanced two-sided approach of this. Let us hear what happens in the United States. The United States military mission program to Liberia years ago did nothing to handle these issues. African is going to come back in. The point is, do we have a cutoff of the spigot? There's no way arms are produced in these countries. So where are the tools of terrorism emanating from? Africans got to handle this. We'll work with Africa on that. I agree with 99% of what you're saying, but it's not true that arms are not, I mean, arms are produced in Nigeria. Oh, well, I, so I, I, I don't know, but I'm talking about specifically and a good practical example of Liberia. I'm no stranger to that process. But arms are produced in West Africa. I am no stranger to the process in Liberia, and that's a good case in point. Where I said and saw approval. All right, we'll continue that discussion. And this is something that we must lay out in a balanced approach to the whole process of terrorism. I understand.